Good morning, everyone. So glad to see all your faces. We are in the final week of the series that we've been in for five weeks now called Waiting Well. Uh, I know it's been a tough series for me as I've reflected on the nature of what it means to wait well and what it means for my discipleship in Jesus. And we are in the final week today and we're closing with uh, a guest speaker. And I didn't uh, invite this guest speaker because I wanted a week off. I invited him because I feel like in the people that I know in my life, he is the person that needs to speak to this aspect of waiting. Um, This man uh, has uh, been a pastor for a long time, and he has curried a lot of respect from myself and from the people around him. Um, Mark Nicholas, Pastor Mark Nicholas, who comes from Beaverton Foursquare, he is brilliant, um, but that's not the best thing about Mark. Mark uh, says he loves Jesus, has values that he says about the gospel, and those values are on full display in his life. He's a man of integrity who puts his money where his mouth is, and I have benefited greatly um, from being in his life and for him being in mine. And so would you welcome uh, Pastor Mark Nicholas. <laughs> All right. Good morning. Thanks for letting me be a part of this gathering. I'm, in, I'm just loving it. I enjoyed the first service, and then uh, the worship is so wonderful. You know, um, you're, I love this man. I love him. I love his family. My family loves his family. Uh, when I heard that he was going to be coming down here to be the pastor, uh, my first thought was, oh, no, not Wayne, because <laughs> he's just a bright light to our community, and I just really knew we'd miss him. But then the second thought was, of course because he's ready to do this kind of thing, and this is really what his, his heart has been tuned towards. And you guys are a blessing to him, and I hope that you realize what a blessing he is to you, because we gave up a good man. So, and we miss him. We really do. Hey, this is Thanksgiving week, so I, I want to ask a couple of questions. How many people here on Thanksgiving are going to go with the traditional turkey for their main courses for the meal? All right, lots of you. Lots of you. Cool. Okay. How many people are going to go with a lesser bird, like a chicken? Okay, that's good. That's good. If it's going to be a bird, it's got to be a turkey. How about a ham or other pork products? How many people are going with that? Okay, yeah, we got some people doing that. All right. How about beef? How many people are going to do something beef? All right, there you go. A couple people doing that. How many people are going to have game? You know what I mean? You killed it, and now you're going to eat it with your family. How many people are doing that one? Am I the only one? Oh, yeah, there you go. Elk, baby, right? Elk, yeah, this is the time of year for it. Um, How about fish? Any pescatarians among us? Who's going to have fish? Anyone? Okay, nobody. How about for the the meat avoidance folks? Um, Who's going to go for something tofu-ish or whatever? I don't know. Nobody. Oh, good. This is a meat-eating crowd. Good, good, good. (laughs) Well, wherever you land on that spectrum, I'm I'm just going to say happy Thanksgiving uh, this week. It's a great week. I I love it. I love the, the family gathering. We get everybody together. Actually, we invite a lot of people we know don't have anywhere to go. I mean, our, our Thanksgiving meal kind of looks like that barroom scene in Star Wars, you know, with just like lots of strange people, and <laughs> we, but we, we just love it. It's just so fun to have everyone over. Um, he mentioned that I work in missions, and actually what that's done is that's given me the privilege of representing our church around the world. I've been so many places. Um, it's kind of funny because I didn't really like travel, and then I took this role, and now I've been to lots of places, and I still don't like travel. Um, I mean, my flights are 10 hours, 15 hours, 14 hours. Like two weeks ago, I was on a, I mean, a week ago, I was on a 15-hour flight from Nepal. So actually a five-hour, then a 15-hour. But it's really not bad if you fly first class. 
So I, I always fly first class. I don't care if the seat says 24B. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, <laughs> at, at this I'm thinking about a flight I had one time, and this was one of those ones where there's a lot of seats in the middle and the two on the sides, and I got one of the ones on the side. I was in the aisle seat, which I like because I can stretch a little bit, and a guy got in next to me. We exchanged a little small talk before a 10-hour flight. And then he put on his noise cancellation headphones and shut his eyes, and I pulled out my Bible and started working on a sermon for the, that I was going to give that weekend. At some point, he noticed, and he pulled off the headset and asked me, are you a preacher? And I said, well, I'm a pastor, yes. I'm, I'm preparing my message uh, for Sunday. And he said, I don't believe in God. I said, okay. And, <laughs> and I just thought, I'll go back to my prep. And then he said, you can't prove God's existence. It's just wishful thinking. And I said, do you want me to prove God's existence to you? And he goes, you can't. And I said, okay, well, I wouldn't try anyway <laughs> because... I, don't, I know where these conversations go, and I don't feel argumentative right now. So I'm not going to try to prove God exists to you. But if you'd like to know what he's like, I'll tell you. He didn't respond. He looked out the window for a little bit, and I went back to the message. And finally, he just kind of croaked it out. He goes, okay, what's he like? <laughs> that gave me a chance to tell him about someone I know, someone I love, someone I'm very close to. It's not theory. It's a real person. And he asked some really good questions. And as we concluded, he said, that is the most interesting conversation I've ever had about God. You know, th there was no, by the way, there was no 35,000 foot conversion. He didn't recite a sinner's prayer. Uh, at best, he agreed that there was something worth considering in what I discussed. That was as far as it went. But supposing I had jumped in when he first baited me. Or supposing I tried to conclude with an attempt to make him commit to something. See, sometimes waiting, giving pause for breathing room is, is part of sharing Jesus. That's part of the deal. And because um, people need, people don't need an argument. They need an introduction. You know, I, sometimes waiting, giving pause is part of sharing Jesus. You know, I, I have a con friend of mine, Dr. Metzger. He's, a, he's an author and a professor at Multnomah University. One of his favorite lines is, I should say was, <laughs> You have to earn the right to be heard. And that, that just didn't sit right with me. I disagreed and told him that it presumes that what I have to say is of ultimate importance. It means that I'm setting up a situation that gives me a chance to say what I've been holding back all along. But how about saying it this way? You have to earn the right to listen. Because people will not really open up to you until they trust you. And trust is built with listening. Then they might let you into their lives. It's all about listening and waiting and not about being heard. Maybe they'll let us into that sacred place in their heart where it really is worth listening. I'm confident that God's going to use that random encounter on a plane to speak to this man's heart. I feel like it was a divine encounter. I can wait without even knowing what's going to happen because I just know this seems to be the way God works. Sometimes he just brings things into place. You, you respond, you participate, and then you don't know where it goes. But he does. And this is exactly how he works. Again, people don't need an argument. They need an introduction. We want to share Jesus because we know of him and, and how he's changed the very fiber of our being into something new. We want to tell it because there's a joy we want to share and we wish it were easier, but sometimes it's not. And it's easy to feel like we aren't living up to God's call to bring the gospel, the good news to the world, because we look at our lives and go, I don't think I'm doing this a whole lot. And I don't know about you, I, that... that that's a question I ask myself sometimes. Lane gave me the message for this morning, what if we had waited? 
And the, the first three messages are really something about that waiting on God. But this one's a little bit different because it's about a posture of waiting with others. This has us a little more others-focused. Waited. We're supposed to wait. Why had, or, or what if we had waited? You know, when I hear the word waited, it's like, it's like screeching brakes. It's like to our impatient culture, waiting is horrible. Um, I order my coffee online so I can pop into the coffee shop before I get to work and get right back in the car. And if it's not ready, I'm, I'm, I'm mad. Where's my coffee? I ordered it online. Supposed to be here. I get tweaked by it. Don't even get me started about the driver in front of me who hits the brake hard at the appearance of a yellow light when we both could have gotten through it. <laughs> we don't like to wait. We just don't like to wait. Now, there is, there is a sense of urgency about our sharing the gospel, yeah? But urgent doesn't mean careless or reckless, like a boat that races out of the harbor and leaves all the other boats shaking like crazy. Now, I think there are admirable gifted evangelists who can get to the heart of the matter easily with people and really get them to open up. I don't think that's everybody, and it's not me. Um, I admire it, again, but I, that's not my gifting. But I still feel the same compelling compelling response to God to tell people about this amazing story of the gospel. I remember studying various methods to evangelize when I was a new believer. I wanted to, I wanted to do this. So I, I, I found one that told me that I had to promise an eternity that was better than this other bad eternity. And that just didn't, that didn't work really well. Or here's another one, um, confront their false beliefs which is really great when you tell someone everything you believe is wrong and everything I'm about to tell you is right. Uh, that didn't work very well. And then another one was to show the logical application of the cross as a bridge across this chasm. And I don't know why, but I just couldn't tell it. I, I know converts weren't won by these efforts. In fact, I, I, I lost a few friends in the process because it was, I didn't listen. I kept getting in the way. My, my desire for them was sincere I really wanted them to become kingdom people to know Jesus and live in that kind of freedom to be sons and daughters of the king. So, but it just it, it didn't happen that way. And, and why does something Jesus told us to do sometimes make us feel awkward? Because it isn't comfortable to argue against someone's beliefs? Because I get easily tripped up on things people ask me back? And sometimes they say things that are profound and they sound right. Because some people just won't agree with me, my thoughts, they just don't get it. That's a bad attitude. Because I feel like I'm selling a ticket to heaven. Not a salesman. Evangelism is bringing good news. And I want it to be, well, good news for the person who gets to hear it. I remember one person saying that Jesus is not the only way to God. And, and I surprised him when I heartily agreed. And he said, I said, there are, in fact, two ways to get to heaven. I may surprise some of you, but there are two ways. The first one is to live a, sin, a sinless life. Seriously, you want to live a sinless life, you, you, you get a ticket to heaven. Sinless life does it. Uh, the second way is to own up to my own sinfulness, repent, and receive the forgiveness of God. And since I'm already way behind on the first one, <laughs> I, I'm so glad there's a second way. And it's based upon not what I've done, but what Jesus has done. Amen? That's good news. As believers, we are commissioned to go and share this good news. We have a duty to fulfill. I'm going to show you. It's from Matthew 28, verse 18. 
And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's a real commission. A commission is, is, is like, it's like a formal written authorization, which is certainly clear in the Scripture, to, to do something. It's, it's the authority to act on someone's behalf, in this case, Jesus' behalf. And it, it's something entrusted to us. He says, make disciples of all nations. So how are we doing? You could say it's going great. I mean, the gospel has gone out to all corners of the earth, from a handful of disciples in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago today to today, there are still unreached people, but Jesus' church is unstoppable. One-third of the world claims Christianity. Now, we might wonder about the depth of that faith. It is a testimony to Jesus' word about his church, and it continues to grow all around the world, especially like the southern hemisphere. It's slowing down a little bit here, but I'm telling you, it's moving like crazy in other parts of the world. If we're going to learn how to share good news, we're going to have to acknowledge some problems, though, that we've created. And because in church history, there were many chapters where we held hands with the colonizers. And we're broken people who do things that we regret. Church is messy. The world sees that. We're not perfect. We're forgiven. But missions is still something we're called to do. We're called to share this great word of God around the world, but also in our own neighborhoods. I've had the privilege of seeing these churches around the world thriving. And it amazes me that the gospel can be so fresh and alive when I consider the encounters of the West on these cultures, especially when you think about how the European exploration of the world by sea led to a lot of exploitation through colonization. Colonization is the act of setting yourself over control over an indigenous people. It means appropriating a place or a domain so that you can use it and its resources for your own gain. The Western way of thinking goes back though, all the way to Rome, to the early days of Rome. For the Roman Empire, they were all about creating a Rome away from Rome. And so when, they, when in 380 AD, the Roman emperor, Empire made Christianity the state church, they knew they would have to be spreading the church as well. And they had a saying, you have to civilize before you can evangelize. And what does it mean to civilize? Well, to be like a Roman. So you first make people like Romans, and then you can tell them about Jesus. So church and empire work together. And to those being colonized, sometimes brutally, this is what it looked like to them. Wow, powerful people with technology we've never seen before took over our land and people, and they're exploiting it for their wealth. And if we don't go along with them, that's not good. But if we do go along with them, there are some rewards, but we have to do what they tell us to do, even when it offends our culture. That's a pretty realistic view. Sometimes our, our, you know, it's, like, it's like beating someone up and going, I'm beating you up for Jesus, and you love Jesus. There's times we just ran roughshod. And it's important for us to acknowledge that along with this exploitation comes a church, by the way, in this colonialization. Here we come to displace whatever they believed before. Proud cultures with deep traditions and ancient spiritual understandings were called savages, barbarians, or other dismissive words that relieved us of the responsibility of trying to understand them right where they are. Again, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's the command. But I want to say something about that. Is that a one-time event? I mean, is that it? Is, do I have to like stay discipling this person forever? Because there's some people I just don't want to spend that much time with. I'm sorry, they're not going to get the gospel. No, can't be that. 
What's the goal? I want a goal. Is it conversion? Is it join my church? Is it maybe the sinner's prayer? What, I, want, I need a goal. Besides, I, I don't know if this is for everybody. Maybe it's just for those gifted evangelists. Maybe I don't have to do this. Isn't, isn't this for other disciple-making types of people who go to faraway places? No. It's what disciples are. Mature disciples are people who disciple others. And by the way, the form go in this is, is kind of misunderstood. Like, it's, it's more about going. It's not like, go now, hurry, don't turn back, get out there and do it. It's more like, kind of get started on your journey of making disciples, or discipling would be a better way to say it, baptizing and teaching. Like, while you're going along, this is what you're going to do while you're going all the time. This is what you do while you go about daily life. How does, this, how does it sound if I say it this way? Having gone which is the right way to understand it. Disciple all nations while baptizing them and while teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. By the way, in the original language, it does not say make disciples. It doesn't read like you're getting an outcome, like a product that you end up with. It, it's more about a process that you're doing while doing whatever else you're doing. The grammar is not telling us to make an object. There's not even a noun in the wording. There's only a single imperative verb. Verb, disciple. Only a command, only an action word, only something to do. It's disciple. We are to disciple all nations by baptizing and teaching. So, again, going while we're going through our normal life. Baptizing. We should lead people to baptism. I love it when people make a private confession or a quiet confession, but ultimately the start of the journey with Christ is baptizing. I always tell people, get baptized. It's the first thing he told you to do. Why don't you respond by obedience and do the first thing he told you to do? There's nothing to do to become a believer. You're just receiving. But he does tell you to do something, and it's to be baptized. So why not be baptized? I really believe in baptism. Something gets started in your life, a pattern of obedience that begins the day you do that. And say to a world that you invite to see it, I'm committing my life to Jesus. And it also says to the world, we're part of the family, so we're together in this thing. And we'll help you as, as you have need. That's, that's the whole point. I was in Nepal one time, and I watched a group of people get baptized. And well, I didn't watch them because we weren't allowed to, because it's a Hindu nation, and the particular town they were in is radically Hindu, and, they, and conversion is illegal. So we sat in this little church um, that my friend was a part of, and he invited me down, and we prayed over 17 people, 17 people that were about to get baptized publicly in the river in town. And we couldn't go because we'd have drawn the wrong kind of attention, so we could only pray there with them. And after we prayed over them, the pastor stood up and he said this, you're going to be ostracized, life is going to be different, some of you will lose your jobs, but we're your family now, and we will be your family through all of it. And I was like, wow. <laughs> That's what we do here, right? Wouldn't it be? Wouldn't it be just great if coming into the family meant being in the family? And then it's also about teaching them. And there's two big ideas here. One is tell them what he taught, and the second one is teach them to obey, mostly by modeling it in my own life. Baptism would be the first step, but then there's other things. We just want to teach someone. We teach it by who we are. By the way, we live out this thing. And this is, this is supposed to be all nations, every kind of human being in the world, even those who are not like you. Now, again, does that sound like people of another ethnicity or another culture? Sometimes intergenerationally we have an issue. Sometimes the other culture we're dealing with is the difference between my age and the youngest generation. Because there's, there's, there's definitely some cultural divide there. There's definitely some things they have to communicate that are more, more difficult because of the difference in our culture. 
With Jesus, there is a final such, and it's the most important component. I am always with you till the end of the age. See, as we do this, we're on mission with Jesus. He's going with us. He joins us. He wants to be there with us. Now, that's about how we bring good news. And I, and I want to encourage you in a couple of things. I'm going to share a few stories. I'm going to say a prayer. And then I'm going to end with an encouragement. I, I want to remind everybody, does everyone know this is Native American um, uh, or First Nations Heritage Month? So you know that? So awesome, right? It's an amazing month. And it's specifically meaningful to me because of how much time I've had the privilege of spending with Native people in Alaska. Um, I've served with Foursquare missionaries. There's two missionaries we have up there, Joel and Trish Buchanan. Joel himself is from the Tlingit people. And uh, it, we, we see two people up there. We work with the Tlingit people in the northern part of Prince of Wales and the Haida in the southern part of Prince of Wales. And there's something that makes me really proud of Foursquare, by the way, uh, as, a, as a movement. We recognize that Alaska is not just a 49th state. I mean, it is, but it's really the home of 12 indigenous nations who had their lives wrecked by the American expansion into their land. And it, it was wrecked, I'm telling you, it really was. If you read the history, you'll see it, and you can't deny it. You, you can't look the other way and go, no, 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 it didn't really happen that way. It really did. And um, we, there were, these were people that had their own unique heritage, their own language, their own trade, their own culture, their own borders. But in order to exploit the abundant resources of Alaska, they just had to be eliminated as obstacles because they were in the way. They were inconvenient and they were in the way. So our government restricted them to land that didn't provide enough for them. They denigrated the cultural symbols like totem poles. They outlawed the traditional potlatch. I'll explain what that is in a minute. And they took children away from their villages and put them in boarding schools. Potlatch. That's our word for it. I was told by one of the native people, that's not what we call it. I said, okay, but that's the, that's the word we use in, in our culture to describe it. What is it? It's a ceremony that's, that's engaged in by native communities. Usually what, what's going on is they'll invite people from all the communities around them to come and celebrate. It might be a wedding. It might be something else. But they'll invite others to come and join them. And one of the, one of the ideas of a potlatch is the person who is running the potlatch is going to give their wealth away. And when you go, you expect to walk out with a lot of stuff. You know, you, if, you've, if you've got a hand truck, you could bring the refrigerator out the door with you. I mean, it's everything. The weed whacker in the garage. Oh, yeah, I've got a can of gas there, too, and some more whack to go with it. You know, it's everything goes. And they give everything away. And when a person becomes wealthy of, of accumulation, that's what they do. Because in Native culture, wealth is not what you accumulate. It's what you give away. And so then they go back about building wealth again, and then they give it away again. There's totem poles that are, that are they're, um, mortuary poles. They're poles about a person's life, and then their symbol will be, their likeness will be on the top, and they'll have one of the native hats. It looks kind of like a top hat. It's actually straw, and it, anyway, it's, it kind of goes up like that, and there are rings around it. Every time you see a ring around that hat was a time he gave his wealth away. So this was something called the potlatch. In 1885, the Canadian government outlawed potlatch ceremonies. Shortly thereafter, potlatch was legally banned in Alaska Territory, Oregon, and Washington, and was suppressed by missionaries and civil authorities. If you had a potlatch, you could go to jail for it. 
Christian missionaries feared the pagan implications of these ceremonies, and the government felt threatened by the distribution of wealth and anti-capitalist connotations of the ceremony. The federal government reasoned that the ban, reason for the ban was that this exorbitant distribution of property was wasteful and reckless. The ban was further, the ban further assimilated indigenous people who were already feeling the effects of other things that were going on. So it was just another way of assimilating but also taking something away from them. Now let me ask you something. What's more savage, to give away everything you own or to outlaw giving away everything you own? Let me talk about totems. I got a picture here of totems. Um, there you go. Those are that's a graveyard of totem poles. They, there was a destruction of totem poles all over Alaska. The missionaries discouraged new poles and even managed to convince some communities to destroy existing poles. That's what that is right there. Um, it was assumed that the designs were of pagan idols and, as such, obstructed their work to bring people to Christianity. But do you know what these are? Do you know what those are? More than 90% are like gravestones. They're, they're mortuary poles. They're just for the life of a person. Could you imagine some culture coming into our place and seeing you kneeling maybe at a, at a headstone in a grave praying and just reflecting on the life of someone you love and then a group coming in and breaking them all down because you were, you were idolizing that? That's what we did. Those poles, most of them are mortuary poles. Then there's family identity poles. There's clan identity poles. There are story poles, very few, but there are story poles. Those are kind of fun. I, I don't have the privilege of telling all those stories today. But, um, but that's, this now represents something new. See those totem poles you saw laid out in that graveyard? They're now being brought into a carving shed. And in that carving shed, they take another piece of wood, I mean, another giant tree, and they're remaking it as an exact replica of the original. And they're putting them up in, in this and many other pole parks, they're trying to reclaim that culture. Why? If we'd only known, we wouldn't have told them to tear them down. If we'd only waited, if we'd only listened, maybe our history would have been a little bit different. Boarding schools was another one. Um, it's often, it was said in America, kill the savage, save the man. And in 1892, Captain Richard Henry Pratt shared his philosophy of assimilation, kill the Indian in him and save the man, his ideas were central to the development of boarding schools that aimed to civilize and Americanize the Indian. And it worked like this. Separate the Indian children from their families and their cultural ways for long periods, four or more years. So they took the children out of their villages, out of their homes. Punish children who speak their native language or continue native practices. Weaken the indigenous uh, influence and cohesion. And finally, make them embrace Christianity and Western values. So... The Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs, our government, took Christian from rural communities and sent them to Christian boarding schools. And parents who refused to do that, to send their children, they could be legally imprisoned and deprived of the federal resources they needed because they were on smaller land now. When did this happen? It happened from the early 1900s to 1970s. I've met people up there who went to boarding schools. And they weren't pleasant experiences for them. That's not, not a high mark in, in our Christianity that we ran those schools. A lot of the kids didn't come back. Tuberculosis raged through those schools, and a lot of kids died at them. I mean, a lot of things happened that were not good. And some kids ran away. They didn't come home to their families because they, were, they, they couldn't take it anymore, and they took off. So there's a lot, a lot of harm came from all of this. And to me, this doesn't sound like Jesus' way. Doesn't sound like his way at all. 
Yeah, I met a young Christian girl there, um, which is unusual, or used to be. It's, it's getting more usual now. But when I first was going up there, the young people had rejected Christianity pretty much across the board. You didn't find a lot. There was one young lady. Her name was Marita, and I was talking to her, and she said, I'll never get it. She said, we already believed in a creator God. Why don't you just come and tell us who he was? Just tell us who he was. You know, we could have done that. Oh, you believe in a creator? You believe in, in the, the great spirit? We'll tell you who he is. By the way, he came. Let's tell you the gospel. Oh, wow. She said, we would have had dances and songs that were written about the gospel. We would have had totem poles that represented the gospel. We would have embraced it. You didn't even, you didn't even stop to hear where we were coming from. Instead, you, you tried to crush it into us. We were invited to help build a carving shed in a small village on the island. A team of eight of us were working for days to make it a strong carving shed. There, was a young, there were young people in the town who didn't want us there, despite the fact that we'd been invited by both the tribal council and by the carver himself. One day they worked themselves into a frenzy and they came to the shed to make us leave. Uh, they cursed and yelled, trying to get us to respond in kind. There were eight of us up on the roof finishing. We, were, we had one more day of work and we'd be done and we'd be leaving. And we'd, we'd done a pretty good job, frankly. And the carver, Joel and I, I, I got off the roof, and Joel and I and the carver went, and we calmed them down. Found it afterwards that before they came down, they had popped all of Joel's tires on his truck. That evening, the team was pretty discouraged. And they said to me, they don't want us here. They don't appreciate what we're doing. Why are we even here? Why don't we, why don't we just go? I said, because they don't want us. That's why we're here. This is an appropriate reaction to things that they believe we're about. And leaving will only feed that. I, we're going to stay. We're going to be Christ-like. We're going to finish what we started. And we're going to leave knowing we gave it our best. So we finished, and we left. And we waited to see if we'd be invited back to one of the other villages. Interesting, though, the word got around the island about this incident, and the other villages said it was shameful. They were so disturbed about the way we were treated because we had just come to give. That's another thing about Native culture is giving is one of those things they really respect. And they said, they came and gave to you, and you threw away the thing they gave you. That's like very bad, very bad. We don't know it. We're just being us. So it turns out this, there's a real cultural rub here. So we were asked to come the next year. We returned to a village called Klawak, and we built a carving shed. I think it's right here. Um, got a picture of it somewhere. Uh, but it was a completely different experience. There it is. It's huge, by the way. They put a whole tree in there next to the old pole, and then carve it into those poles you saw standing. In fact, we actually carry them. They, they have to be carried by hand. So our teams, when we go up there, they have like four by fours, and they have four people on this side, four people on that side, and you lift in a tree together, and a whole row of us, and we do it to, to native dance and music, and, and we just we march this thing over a mile, by the way. We get a couple breaks with sawhorses underneath, but it's, it's, it's heavy. It's quite a job. You don't want anyone sloughing on your roll. <laughs> Um, but we were welcomed. They assisted us. We worked side by side. Other locals stopped and talked and expressed excitement about what we were doing. That carving shed is now like a landmark for the island, and uh, it's, it's, it is one of the largest and the most productive one in all of Alaska now. Uh, John Rowan is the, is the guy who does the carving there. John is uh, a believer, and he, te he teaches the young people. He's getting older, so he wants to have younger people learning. So he's got quite a few younger people he teaches about how to carve. And he, te he teaches about the gospel while he's doing it. He say, hey, yeah, and we're cutting this. In our ancient days, our people believed this symbolized this. Well, actually, the gospel says 
And he uses the very carving of them to share about Jesus. Stories, stories. I was told of the importance of stories to the native culture. They, they don't have a written language, so oral tradition was, is what it means, um, it was the means by which they would share their stories and their culture. And it was really exacting. It was really important to get it right. Which I've learned about oral cultures, by the way. They're very exacting. They don't want anything embellished. They don't want wrong facts. So it starts when you're a child and you start telling your family stories. And you can tell it all you want with your own family, but until you've proven that you've got it all right, and the elders are watching and they get you to get it right, you can't tell it anywhere else. The other thing about it is that, and then, of course, you go from there to telling the clan stories, the village stories, et cetera. And as long as you can do it exactly. So I, I had one guy telling me stories that were 5,000 years old from their culture, saying, yeah, this happened here, and this is how. He had even had the names of the people involved. So really elevated my understanding of what it means to have those kinds of stories. But here's the thing about the stories. Um, you couldn't do this unless you had permission or you were in it. So if you were in the family and the family gave you permission, you could now tell the story. If you were involved in the story, you could tell the story. But if you were not involved in the story, you could not tell it unless it was granted to you. In fact, you couldn't sing the other um, community's songs. You couldn't dance their dances unless they gave you permission, which meant they would teach you diligently how to do it correctly. So um, that's, that's, about, that's what it's like. Clan stories, travel stories, again, unless you're a part of it or you're given permission, you can't tell the story. So one day I was outside that carving shed talking to the town administrator sometime after we had finished it, and uh, he said to me, you know, we're never going to put a placard on this shed that says, old Beaverton and Foursquare dedicated their time to doing this. He said, You're, in fact, he goes, that's just not our way. In fact, individuals, you won't even be remembered. You won't be remembered that way. That's just not how we do things. But he goes, I want you to know this. For as long as stories are told and this shed stands, people will tell of a time when the Beaverton clan joined the Hinoquan clan to build this shed together. And we will tell that story. And you can tell that story because you're in it. So I just told it. We've been partnering with these communities now for about 10 years, bringing the good news because we know, I'm going to just read two verses here. One is from Ecclesiastes 3.11, and then I'm going to go to 1 Acts 17, and this is it. He's made everything beautiful in his time, and he has also put eternity into man's heart so that yet so that he can find out what God has done. He cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He's put eternity in people's hearts. It's already there. It's already there. They're already considering spiritual things. Most people are. The other one is from, from Acts 17, 22. And God made from one nation, from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. It is actually not far from each one of us. We are God's messengers of reconciliation. Our very lives, our lives are a message. We have the weapons of Jesus, love, right? Love of others and the word of God. We're finally beginning to see some things happen in the native communities up there. My favorite story is one of, of one town. The, there was a drug-addicted male, I mean, mayor, a drug-addicted mayor who was, was presiding over a town that had lots of drug problems. <laughs> Go figure, how could that happen? He was radically saved not too long ago. And that 
it was so radically saved that he just came on fire, leading his community to Jesus. And he, the whole community has changed. And he invited me down there with some others to come and work on their church because they have this old church. It used to be the center of town. A lot of people went to it back in the old days. Now it's, it was mostly empty. And it, was, it had black mold and other problems. He said, would you come up here and we'll just restore it? We're going to rebuild it with you. So we went up there just um, like a month ago and did all this restoration in this church because they're worshiping there again. So this is not for nothing. My, my, God says, my word will not return to me void. It was not for nothing that we patiently did all the things we did for years, and we went at their pace. And it's not, I want to be careful, it's not just about, in fact, it's not about us at all. It's about what Jesus wanted to do. As Joel will say, Joel, the missionary, would say, um, you guys, they don't, they don't even think of you individually. They just think, wow, isn't it cool that the church that we used to have disdain for wants to come up here and help us build our culture again. And it softened their hearts. They like us. They used to say when we were coming to town, they said, oh, the church people are coming to town. Now they go, hey, the church people are coming to town. For real. Except for one guy, my, my friend, uh, one of my friends there who's always given us a little bit of a hard time. We helped them build a, they found an old bell. It was the, um, it was the town bell that during a fire back in the 30s fell into the bay and they never found it again. And the fishermen dredged it up. And we saw it out front of the, of the city hall. And we said, hey, you want to go re rebuild that like it used to be? They said, sure. You guys want to come help? We said, yeah. So we built this, this beautiful bell tower in Klawak. And the bell is there. You can still ring it. And they, he said that one of the guys was telling me, the guy who's a little bit, he always gives us a hard time. He goes, yeah. He goes, he goes there were signals. Like one signal meant there's a storm coming. Two meant there's someone lost at sea. Three meant and I remember that was the four means there's missionaries in town hide. <laughs> I want to read you a prayer now. This is a prayer from the First Nations version of the Bible. Trigger warning. I'm going to call God something that you're not used to having him called because this is what they called him. Here we go. When you pray, do not, like the people from, do not be like the people from outside nations who use empty words over and over again, thinking their many words will help them be heard. Your Father, the Creator, already knows what you need even before you ask. Instead, when you send your voice to the Great Spirit, here is how you should pray. O oh, Great Spirit, our Father from above, we honor your name as sacred and holy. Bring your good road to us that the beauty of your ways in the spirit world above is reflected on the earth below. Provide for us day by day the elk, the buffalo, the salmon, the corn, the squash, and the wild rice, all the things we need for each day. Release us from the things we have done wrong in the same way we release others from the things done wrong to us. Guide us away from the things that tempt us to stray from your good road and set us free from the evil one in his worthless ways. Aho, may it be so. You know, we see the impact of Jesus on people when we enter their world, not when we try to bring our world, but we enter their world. We listen. I, I even have some examples of Muslim. We have some, we've done a lot of work with refugees when they first arrived. We always wanted the refugees who come, and we have a lot of refugees in Beaverton. We want them to meet Christians because a lot of times they have an idea of what we are, and we want, to, we want them to see that we're actually very loving. And so we've had quite a few relationships with some leaders, and one of the leaders, um, he, he leads one of the groups there. He said to me, uh, he was telling a friend of his, yeah, I'm going to go to a meeting. i got a meeting tonight at the church. And he goes, you mean the mosque? He goes, no. The church, before church, that's my church. Another one said, she gives, she, we helped her with food boxes. She said, you know, 
you people are so loving. I didn't expect this. I'm amazed at your kindness to us. And my favorite is Dr. Omar Reda, who is a trauma specialist at St. Vincent's Hospital. And he was talking one day. He goes, do you think I can go with you on mission sometime? A Muslim man wants to go on a mission with a Christian group. That's crazy. But we meet him in his world. And then the door opens up that he might want to come with us to our world. People are all, we are all revealing Jesus in all of our going. You and me. People are watching. And I don't think they're watching to find fault. I think they're watching to see if something here is real. People want, want real. Jesus said he came to reveal the Father and he had a message. Message is paraphrased like this. Come home. I'm not mad at you. I don't like to see what's happening to you in this world. So come to me. Find healing and rest. Emmanuel used this verse last week, and I'll use it today. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What an amazing, amazing message we have to share. Come home. It's, like it's an invitation to a banquet table. You know, there's a sign over the door of heaven that says, whosoever will may come. Yet when you walk through that door, you find a place already set with you with your name written on it. We have good, good, good things to share. I'm going to encourage you. A lot of you are going to have your Thanksgiving meals this week, and I don't know what they're going to be like. If they're a mix of family, you might have all the political and religious and other kinds of tensions, relational tensions in the room. And maybe you don't. Maybe you just have the most peaceful kind of thing going on in your home. But whatever it is, what if your whole posture this time was one of just being interested in everyone else? And just being kind of more contented and peaceful and not getting into the baited arguments. And we've had enough of those over the last year. I mean, so many of them. We all have opinions, you know, and, and, and we could all share them. But sometimes we don't listen very well. Maybe this would be the difference. I was talking to a, a, a Buddhist one time, and he was telling me that about, because he wanted to share with me. And, and at first he said, is it okay? I said, yeah. I mean, do you believe what you believe is true? He goes, yes. I said, is it like in burning in your heart? He goes, it is. I said, evangelize me. Tell me why I should follow this, because I don't. I believe in something else. And he began to tell me a little bit about it. One of the things that he said was when, I asked him, what about happens after life? And he goes, well, we become one with the universe. I said, is the universe a person? I said, not exactly. I said, Do you, are you still a person? He goes, no. I said, so the person I see right now, the person talking to me, that exists, ceased to exist when you die. And in his version of Buddhism, he said, yeah. I said, what about your kids and your wife? Yeah. I said, wow. He said, why? What do you believe? He said, I believe that when we die, we go to a place where we can see everybody we love and know. That there's a place where we're recognized, that it's, it's me that's there with people I know, Lane, my wife, my kids, my friends. We're, we get to see one another because we're still persons. And he said, wow, that sounds good. You have to listen. We have to wait enough. So thinking about those Thanksgiving celebrations, I just want to give you a couple of encouragements and then I'll finish with a prayer. My encouragement to you is to have this heart when you gather. See the people that you are with as Jesus sees them so you can love them like Jesus loves them. Second thing, lean into their conversations with honest inquisitiveness about what they believe. And finally, be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks for the reason of the hope that is in you.
Amen? Lord, I want to thank you so much, Lord. You are good, and I know that your love abounds through this community, Lord. I just pray that everyone here would be just brimming over with the fullness of the Spirit in all their encounters, all the time and all they're going, but especially this week as people gather, and that they would be the lights. They would be the safe people, the people that bring peace to the gathering. I pray that as we all prepare for our week, we all ask for that in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. Thanks for letting me come. Thank you, Pastor Mark. Thank you. We're going to end in a time of communion in just a moment, but please don't check out. I want you to hear me for a second, okay? Um, I'm inspired by Mark's humility to receive the gospel on Christ's terms and not his own. Um, I want to acknowledge, too, uh, I want you to hear what Mark is saying and not hear what he's not saying, because I think what he's saying can be offensive to the religious spirit in us, right? Um, if what you heard was that the gospel is about merging religions, then you, wasn't, you weren't hearing what he was saying. We believe that everyone needs Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. We believe that every culture needs to know the creator God. But Jesus transforms souls, and the souls transform the culture. What often we want to do is convert culture in order to convert souls, and that's not how the gospel works. The transformative power of Jesus impacts a person's heart and minds and draws them to him, and that's what changes the world, right? We don't change the world in order to make people meet Jesus. That's not how it works. Sometimes we want to evangelize by transforming people into our likeness, but that's not how it works. That's not how the kingdom works. Jesus is in the business of transforming us into his likeness. Amen? We believe everyone needs Jesus, but we understand that he transforms souls on his terms and not our own. Amen? I made a decision when I came to be the pastor of this church that we would do communion every week, which I know to some of you has had mixed reviews. Um, but the reason, <laughs> it may have been an increase on the budget line for this year, who knows. Um, but the reason why I've found this practice to be so important for me as a pastor is because it forces us every week, no matter what we talk about, no matter what we preach, no matter what's said, no matter what songs we sing, that everything we are and everything we do comes back to this. Who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and what we get to share with the world. Amen. The earliest beliefs surrounding, you can get out your elements now, the earliest beliefs surrounding communion is that when the elements would touch uh, a human, that it, it represents the transformation that takes place in the human heart when we touch Jesus. And so as we take communion today, we, not, we don't do so lightly. We do it celebratorily, but we also do it with reverence knowing that this is a discipline, this is a practice, this is a sacrament, which we know our lives with Jesus transforms us. It changes us. That when we drink of the elements, that we, when we eat of the bread, when we drink of the cup, that Jesus' love moves through us like our blood, transforming us into who he wants us to be. Amen? Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood and new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
Lord, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. We are grateful uh, for the plurality of voices that you bring to teach your word. We thank you for Pastor Mark and the wisdom that he has shared this morning. And we pray that your truth would sink its way into our hearts and our minds. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.